I'm Rick O'Shea, the literary curator of the UCD Festival, and I'd like to welcome you to this, the second virtual edition of UCD Festival at Home for 2021. The UCD Festival is unique and award-winning, one where the global UCD community of students, alumni, future students, and also the wider general public join us for free online events. For the second year, we're not on campus, but instead where you are bringing you all of the inspiring, engaging and informative activities of the regular festival here for our digital and worldwide festival audience to enjoy. I'm particularly thrilled to be highlighting the series of UCD Festival at Home Conversations. There are over 20 chats and discussions taking place and with nearly 100 free virtual and engaging events also running across the weekend, there's something for everyone in the family to enjoy. You can stay up to date on the full UCD Festival at Home program at UCD ie slash festival and don't forget you can join the conversation through the chat function on youtube or on twitter using the hashtag ucd festival do get involved thanks for joining us and enjoy the event so welcome to this conversation as part of the 2021 UCD Festival. I'm Emily Pine, a professor from the School of English, Drama and Film at UCD. And I'm delighted today to be talking to two incredible writers, Emma Dabry and Sophie White. They are both writing about topics that are compelling in terms of their content, but also what captivates me as a reader is their sheer skill as writers. Uh, so let's give them both an introduction. Uh, alphabetically, uh, Emma Dabry is an Irish-Nigerian academic, activist and broadcaster, and author of Don't Touch My Hair, which was an Irish Times bestseller. She's here today to talk about her new book, What White People Can Do Next, From Allyship to Coalition. Sophie White is a writer, journalist and podcaster from Dublin. She is the author of Recipes for a Nervous Breakdown, Filter This, Unfiltered, and her most recent and outstanding collection of essays, Corpsing My Body and Other Horror Shows. So you both have books out this year. Huge congratulations. That's amazing. Um, so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about your books and your processes. And they're both really different in terms of their subject matter. And yet at the same time, I'm struck by reading them together that they both feel like manifestos for kind of scrutinizing the assumptions that we live within and thinking more honestly and more kind of trying to skewer a lot of those assumptions, basically. Uh, so I'm really looking to forward to hearing you talk about race, gender, bodies, health, family, and basically anything and everything in between. Uh, I'd like to get us started by asking what led you to write these particular books. And Emma, I might start with you. Uh, your book is an examination of race, class, capitalism, and colonialism, and it feels very much provoked by what you call the proliferation of allyship guides. Uh, can you give us a sense of what led you to writing it? Because it wasn't the first time that allyship had come up for you. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, so I wrote it um, in response to the response to the murder of George Floyd. Um, when he was killed last summer, the summer of uh, 2020, um, there was, you know, this huge uh, outburst, particularly like on uh, online, but beyond that as well, um, this, this, this response for, um, even though these extrajudicial killings of, um, you know, black people in America are something that have happened with historic regularity. There was a particular set of circumstances and conditions that in this instance, it really seemed like it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And, you know, there was this huge 
response. Um, but I quite quickly started to feel that the response was, um, I started to feel that some of, some of the response um, was not as helpful as it might have um, desired or claimed to be. And that it, it, it actually reinforced some of the problems and some of the assumptions and beliefs that have brought us to where we are today. And it failed to challenge some of the key issues that would need to be challenged to bring about the type of change that is necessary. What I find about the current anti-racist movement, one of the things I find frustrating is, um, you know, because so much of it happens online, it is, um, it can be quite reductive. We have these kind of concepts, not even so much concepts, we have these kind of phrases and buzzwords that are often untethered from the radical and and expansive environments in which they were in which they were created and we also seem to the the, the current kind of mainstream liberal anti-racist thing (laughs) whatever it is also doesn't seem to engage with class or capitalism which have been kind of key organizing um points in uh previous and I, I would argue, more effective uh, movements of the past. That's really interesting. I really love that way that, sorry, this is the academic in me kind of like feeding back to you <laughs> what you have just said. I'm like, being, I'm trying to teach, but just that sense of this moment being both an opportunity, but also in ways, sometimes the conversation feels like it's being shut down at the same time. Absolutely. So I felt we were presented with this historic opportunity, the likes I've um, kind of never seen in my own lifetime, but the potentiality of that was being squandered, um, potentially squandered by, by a narrative that just reproduced lots of the problems. Yeah. And totally people being shut, people, totally people being shut down as well. A very narrow script emerging as to how to perform anti-racism and any deviation from that narrow script, it cannot be tolerated, you know, which doesn't, (laughs) which seems quite authoritarian to me. So I'm like, I reject racism but I don't. I, I also reject some of the responses to to, to dealing with it. And there, there are there are alternative ones, you know. Um, I'm like, who decreed that this particular formulation of anti-racism is the only way to frame any of this? And um, I think I'm more inspired by liberation movements. And that difference between anti-racism versus liberation is something that I'm interested in. And um, things like this fetishization of interpersonal privilege at the expense at the expense of class analysis or the interrogation of capitalism, it's all just very, a lot of it just seems like very interpersonal and very kind of non-strategic and short-sighted. Yeah, I understand. Can I say, I'm... Yeah. Oh, so sorry. I just was going to say that um, I'm in the middle of what white people can do next, Emma. And it's just um, a fantastic piece of work. I adored your exploration of, um, you know, discussing the construct of race as as an idea in civilization. And I just felt like 
um, you know, I've followed you obviously, you know, for years and uh, when um, last summer there was so much fascinating discourse and I think exactly as you said, so many of us with, you know, profound privilege were scrambling to support and be allies and, and had, I mean, you know, we were fumbling massively because it is huge, um, you know, what we're seeking to do as a culture right now. And, uh, you know, when I saw the title of your forthcoming book, you announced it on your Patreon, and uh, I, I felt really like, oh my God, this, okay, Emma is going to, you know, lead us. And when I got down to reading, I realized that you were going to take this amazing step back from the feverish, you know, <laughs> earnestness of allyship, and really offer just such an, I mean, your intellect is just uh, incredible and it's, uh, it's an incredible piece of work. Like, I mean, I'm just really grateful to you for it. And, uh, and also I just adore the discussion of, you know, the early kind of formation of the European identity, the African identity, you know, and all of that's just, yeah, really incredible. Thank you so much. That's really great to hear. Thank you. This is amazing because this is already a conversation. Here I am with my careful <laughs> questions and it's already become a discussion. Um, so, Emma, you mentioned scripts, right? And that idea of kind of trying to lead and stuff. And, and that does lead me into thinking about and asking Sophie about your book and where it came from. Because to my mind, so much of what you're doing, Sophie, is, is, is rewriting the script or taking the script we know and trying to to make us think about it differently so i just wondered where where did the motivation to write a collection of essays come from um i suppose when i first started writing the uh kind of early essays that became corpsing uh i was writing from the middle of grief and i was really pissed off because i felt that there was no script for this and I was really pissed off because I felt like I had had been offered no sense of what grief was going to be like. I'm sure both of you can relate. And I, it was funny because my dad had early onset Alzheimer's and he was diagnosed in his early 50s. So I'd watched this glacial decline, um, you know, of my father. and. Uh, I think like a lot of people who've really tapped out the hours at a deathbed um, or a sickbed, uh, I thought I'd done the grief. Like I thought I'd been doing it that whole time. And I was like, that's brilliant multitasking. You know, I'm here. I'm looking at my dad dying. I'm probably answering emails on my phone, taking a selfie and grieving, ticking the box. And then, you know, the kind of moment of his death I realized that I'd been in a deep denial and that, uh, you know, grief was coming for me. And I was really like uh, shook uh, and blindsided by, I thought grief really in essence was probably sitting around being kind of sad. And I was like, okay, you know, sadness is quite a passive kind of state in many ways, seems kind of doable. Uh, and what instead presented was just this absolutely claustrophobic, suffocating guilt and I just thought why do they even call it grief they just call it guilt and like the sensation of feeling guilty as we know is actually just intolerable really and then an extended period of of guilt 
um, is is really tough. And, you know, I suppose that that was kind of what started the writing for Corpsing was this sense that I had no idea what to do with grief. And um, I tried loads of different things. There's a lot in Corpsing about alcoholism. And um, so I tried that. And um, I... <laughs> had my first nervous breakdown when I was 22. So I'd done a lot of legwork in terms of, you know, being totally batshit. And um, so I suppose Corpsing just kind of became just this whole exploration of what a horror show and the very kind of banal realities of life can be. Yeah, that's what, what I what I love about that as well is is thinking about grief and saying this feels like guilt and how important it is to get precision of language and a precision of emotion and how impossible it is at the same time. You know that you're just constantly striving for the for something that feels like a little bit out of reach sometimes. But what okay. I love in Corpse is how you're exploring it. Yeah, and actually on that, like in terms of the precision of language, I was, um, you know, I was interested to learn when I was writing and my amazing editor, Lisa Cohen at Trump Press, who you know well, and um, from working on your beautiful book, um, Notes to Self, you know, she pointed out to me that um, grief uh, is, uh, you know, it kind of comes from another word to bear or to carry. And there's also connection to uh, the word debt. And I saw you know, that's so interesting. And I think in the book, I kind of talked about how, you know, the guilt after someone dies and, and you feel like you didn't do their death right and you didn't do your love for them right and you didn't do their illness right. It feels like a debt you'll never be able to repay. And um, so precision of language, as you say, it's really interesting. Yeah. And also the importance of a good editor. Yeah. Really, really important. Yeah. Oh my God. And yeah. <laughs> Emma, I might come back to you um, on this because you raised some of those issues there at the beginning about some of the problems with allyship. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the things you discuss in the book. And um, what really struck me in the book was how you, when I mentioned skewering assumptions, like skewering the assumption of, of the binaries that underpin so much of anti-racism, which leave concepts or categories of black and white still in place and while trying to, you know, overwhelm them with kind of liberal good intentions. Uh, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about these issues and how binaries don't work. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I think one of the uh, uh, issues I have with the current um, kind of articulation of anti-racism is, so this idea, it's like, yeah, racism exists and it's bad. But our response to that should be to just make white people nicer through a combination of like cajoling, begging, demanding, training, um, as though there is an outcome other than racism when we continue to see the world through the rigid, essentialized uh, lens of race race, the idea of a white race and uh, a, a black race is, in, is first introduced in like 1661 and it's invented in order to create racism. So race and racism are, um, are go, go hand in hand. Race isn't like a um, neutral, um, a, a kind of a, a neutral truth that just happens to exist in nature. It is a, like a, a socially engineered construct 
that was invented to create racism. And I didn't see any of that conversation happening in the anti-racist moment, movement. In fact, I saw lots of people kind of doubling down on the truth status of race and more and more people acting as though it's a biological truth. And I'm like, this is the moment where we should be unpacking that, not where we should be like reinforcing it. I'm obviously not saying race doesn't exist because now we have lived with the architecture of race for over 400 years. So it would be, you can't throw the baby out of the bathwater. We have to accept that society is stratified along racialized lines. But we have to kind of, Stuart Hall, you know, the um, Jamaican English cultural theorist, um, in 1991, he's talking about the idea of race as being a concept that's past its sell-by date. It's under erasure. So we should be working further towards the dissolving of those, of that taxonomy of, of a racialized um, kind of hierarchy rather than you know, doubling, doubling down on it in the way that the current kind of anti-racist movement often does and making these wide um, sweeping statements and assumption about black people do this and white people do that. I'm like, well, who specifically are we talking about? You know, <laughs> white people are also not a monolith, you know? And so even though the book says um, what white people can do next, very, within a couple of pages, I talk about actually how preposterous it is for me to be addressing white people across the world from Australia to America to Ireland to the UK. Um, in doing so, in, in acting as though it is a generic, a ge in, in uh, acting as though or in evoking that generic uh, category of whiteness, it's kind of doing the work that whiteness was created to do which was to collapse those distinctions that exist between different classes of European people, between European people that actually have very different social realities, to collapse those, dissolve those distinctions, um, and to reimagine them all as white, so that actually the exploitation that happens between those various groups is obscured, and they imagine themselves as having like a common set of shared interests um, that prevents them from seeing shared interests and solidarities that they might have with other groups of people who are racialized in other ways, but who they might actually have more um, in common with in terms of the, 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 life, the life that they're living. And just to kind of clarify that, the book talks about how when whiteness is first introduced and codified into law, it's actually in the context of colonial Barbados, whereby there are a number of uprisings between indentured Irish, indentured Irish servants and enslaved Africans who identify the English and sometimes Scottish landlords as a common enemy, so come together to attack them. And one of the things that the idea of whiteness does is to introduce this inherent idea of superiority, um, well, to introduce this hierarchy where people who are racialized as white are inherently superior, people who are racialized as black are inherently inferior. And that does a number of things, such as justify um, the enslavement that um, European economies or Western economies are becoming increasingly dependent on, but it also shuts down those um, solidarities that are emerging between, um, you know, like indentured European labourer and an enslaved African, because that's really threatening to the power structure 
because there are more exploited people if they identify that small European elite as a common enemy. You know, that's that's extremely threatening. And the next time, well, another example that we see is in colonial Virginia, where it's indentured English laborers and enslaved Africans who come together in a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion, again, against the English elite landlord class. And it's very shortly after that, that these laws that introduce the idea of a white race um, are introduced and that strip all rights away from people who become racialized as black. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. I mean, and that needs to be known. <laughs> yeah, that just needs to be known. It's not known. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just a brilliant just a brilliant kind of tour de force, really, overview of A, what you talk about in the book, but also what the underlying issues are. As Sophie says, I just so admire the way you historicize the discussion, right? So you're thinking about actually the formation of these identities and how you use the phrase an intersectionality of issues rather than identities. And again, the idea of class as being the missing factor, right? Class and capitalism, colonialism, and that These are the inheritances with which we are all struggling. And if we identify that as a we rather than an us and a them or, you know, whoever is us and whoever is them, then that Mm -hmm. kind of mutuality can actually inform solutions. So I... I, it's it's really really convincing, and I think it's really powerful. It also strikes me, and I and I wonder, was is part of that your academic training, right? Is part of that the fact that you have a PhD and you are interested in that kind of research? Is that why you're interested in that kind of narrative? Yeah, I think so. I like so my my PhD looks at the kind of um, creation of the racial category mixed race and how that operates, like via v uh black and 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 white and because my uh doctoral like research is all looking at how how racial categories are constructed and why that happens um i just couldn't believe all this conversation was happening about black people and white people and yet it was almost entirely devoid of any of that context of why those racial, why those classifications exist, why we see ourselves as black people, why we see, why, why we see ourselves and each other through this lens of whiteness. Because I think it's in that space that you can start to do the work, to coin a, a, a current popular phrase, to do the work that actually brings about the, 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 the necessary kind of change that needs to happen, but it certainly won't come about from the reification of racial of racial categories. And then, um, so yeah, that's what the my PhD is in sociology. But then I also taught African studies at SOAS for a long time. So there are um, parts of the book where I'm kind of drawing on, I guess, yeah, non-Western kind of epistemic or epistemic, yeah, tra- traditions. And I'm also really uh, interested in, you know, just kind of radical black organizing of the past. And because we evoke so many of the names of those people, um, yet we seem to kind of uh, dispense with uh, the, 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 the full 
um, content of what they were saying. I thought um, just bringing more of their insights and lessons um, to the fore could be could be really useful for people, and especially because we're familiar with so many of those names. Like you know, we're we're familiar with the Black Panthers. We're familiar with like well, I mean, a lot of people are. I guess a lot of people aren't as well, but. People like Huey Newton, people like Fred Hampton, people like Audrey Lord, like, you know, people kind of do know those names often, but I think we overlook really how yeah radical and expansive their vision was. And people will often just are just throwing the word radical around, you know, and I'm like, you know, anything that really kind of falls back along the fault lines of these divisions that were invented to separate us in order to better exploit us is not radical. Solidarity is actually what's radical. You know, solidarity is harder to do. Yeah, it is. It's harder to do. And complex history, complex responses are harder to do too. But I think one of the things your book really attests to is is the virtue of and the need for that kind of complexity. This is going to be my subtle segue into saying the same to Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember what the the beginning of was, but I did really (laughs) like obviously you know just taking so much from what Emma is saying here and just I suppose um you know I wanted to kind of I suppose ask Emma more about kind of I suppose there's a part in that the early part of what white people can do next where you talked about your uh kind of I don't want to project but I kind of sensed an ambivalence about you know, a black Irish woman enter, un, entering into kind of Afro studies and uh, you kind of discussed kind of in your like early sort of studies, um, you know, a feeling of like, was a slight sort of, uh, I suppose, was there a kind of a hesitance, hesitancy for you in that it was something that you felt maybe was kind of expected of you? And then I suppose as the kind of Black Lives Matters uh, movement gained ground last year, like, I suppose, did you feel like people were looking to you for a kind of, you know, a guidance almost because you're a teacher and you have a unique insight? Uh, like, did you feel kind of like a burden placed on you as a woman and as a, you know, a person to kind of respond and like write this book even, I suppose? No, not really. I wrote it because I because I wanted to. Like that whole thing online of like silence is violence. I, I'm just like just because it rhymes and sounds catchy doesn't actually mean like it's 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 helpful. Um, if I don't want to talk about, I'm not I'm not going to have like what I talk about dictated by the demands of, of social media. Um, and I also. Um, I had been asked about allyship like a lot in the past, and I just actually was just. As I say in the book, I didn't really feel compelled to answer and I I didn't feel compelled to really expand on it. And I often thought that like what the person was expecting me to say and what I would actually say would be would be so distant and so far apart that I just really couldn't get into it unless I kind of um, had more space to expand on it. And I didn't feel like doing that. I mm. did feel like doing it um, in when I saw this proliferation of allyship guides, like all of my frustrations with allyship just came to the fore again. And I was like, 
I actually need to make an intervention. So I just felt compelled. I felt like a sense of responsibility, but not because people were like necessarily demanding it of me, but just because I was like, this is so kind of like untethered from its context. I just need to like present or suggest like another framework of having these conversations. Yeah. Sophie, can I ask you about that, that sense of compulsion and how it informs or shapes your writing? And when you were writing Corpsing, um, one of the things I found reading it was that I would read an essay and I would think, oh, now I know who she is. And then I would, and we've met in real life, right? So in theory, yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> but then I would read it with the next one and they're like, oh, I don't know her at all. And, and then I would read the next one. I think, oh, now I'm starting to know who she is, right? So there's this constant revelation and, and real deep dive into the complexity or diversity of the self. So I wondered, and I mean, your, your book has a really clear structure as does Emma's right but how did you come up with the structure of your book and how or even a kind of a more general question how did you feel you as a writer approaching this just complexity of context and event and emotion and and the complexity of the self really um well that's so interesting I mean that's such an interesting perspective I haven't heard anyone else say I read an essay, felt I knew you, and then you just left fielded me. Um, <laughs> I suppose uh, in terms of the structure, I think it was probably, you know, it's like the last thing that I put on it really, um, which is funny because say for my fiction work, I can't not reference what is above me, which is a very <laughs> structured, insane, detailed wall <laughs> of... Um, of planning and plotting, you know, um, uh, with the nonfiction work, I feel like I'm always feeling my way in the dark, actually. And it's very little that is kind of premeditated um, for me at all. I like when I started corpsing, uh, it was initially called eating, drinking, never thinking. Um, and Obviously, uh, the lyric is smoking, drinking, never thinking, but I, I gave up smoking <laughs> um, and replaced it with eating. Um, but it was really a book about appetites and that kind of unruliness of the female appetite, particularly the body's kind of needs and our just constant wrestling, uh, you know, with those factors. And, uh, you know, then it kind of, you'd evolved and I wrote the first draft and it was actually Sarah uh, Davis-Goff and you know the other extremely talented tramp at Tramp Press who said like do you realize that you've written kind of a horror book here and uh, you know it was only her saying it that I thought oh yeah I mean there's lots of talk about monstrous hands and monstrous people and and kind of you know and violence and and violence against ourselves. I wrote an essay called Self-Soothing that is about self-harming. And, um, you know, that one, I think, was one of the, the major ones I wanted to, like, F out the airlock. I was like, I don't want this in the book. Like, you know, I kind of wrote a lot in the first draft from just a, a place of, like, pure, you know, pretense that no one would read this. And then it was in the redrafting that I had to kind of gain acceptance with each kind of essay and, and what it did reveal about me to the reader. Um, and so 
like I said, the structure kind of really came last. Even the sense that it was a, a book of horror, and um, you know, came sort of late. And um, so it's funny. I always wanted to be one of those writers who was like, it just emerged organically, and there I appear to be one. Um, but yeah, that's it. It is. I do feel compelled to write. Uh, it's a kind of a, a sort of a sickness, and um, I think uh, it's a sort of an effort to subdue. Um, my own self a lot of the time um, and to process I suppose like obviously you know what we experience like and you think every like this I don't know if there's a writer that it isn't part about you know processing even in fiction is so much about processing what I experience and um, yeah so I think as well like it's funny how I think the almost three-act structure of corpsing came about in real time because I began it in 2017 and by the end of the book you know the last writing I was doing on it was actually just like in February just gone it was very unusual like the book was published in early March and I was writing down to the wire and with it and it's just so interesting that this extremely bleak apocalyptic ending presented itself you know with the pandemic last year kind of culminated in me being hospitalized for you know yet another breakdown um and you know i never would have wanted to deliver this really redemptive uh you know neat uh ending to some things uh but i, I suppose i didn't think it was going to be just that uh shambolic either that i would be writing from the psychiatric ward um but at the same time there is a i think a glimmer of hope in that like i was you know diagnosed at well, it's 35 with, uh, you know, as being bipolar and is actually the most clarity I've had in 15 years of, of what's wrong with me, <laughs> you know, that kind of way. So it is very, um, uh, I suppose that's the kind of, is that the upside of corpsing the book? I think it might be, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it's, as a, as a reader, it feels very hopeful. It feels very painful, right? It feels very beautiful. It feels very funny. It feels very human. It feels very real. It feels well, like I sort of know you and don't know you at the same time because you are bringing that person into being at the same time. And that comes through your writing really and so powerfully. And I, there were so many times that I, I underlined that both books are full of underlines, by the way. And I underlined all of these passages, including all these lines, like, um, Sophie, you wrote, even just writing this essay unnerves me, or I'd spent so long hiding my addiction that to out it was unthinkable. And I, you've talked a little bit about it there, Sophie, but I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about what's at stake? Like, what are the risks in, in kind of drawing, pulling back the curtain, right, on the things that we normally keep hidden? Mm, yeah, I suppose it's like probably very specific to, you know, uh, substance abuse and I think as well like there's definitely like it's got a lot in common I think with eating disorders as well and and self-harm really is that if you reveal like basically I think the kind of state of being addicted is a you know a constant um project of protecting your the thing your medicine like you know you can't uh really I think conceive of a life without it when you're right in it it's the only thing keeping you going until it's you know obviously you know 
just such a, a an act of of self-harm and self-abuse and and punishing thing you know and it's funny when it like tips into being that kind of um athletic self-punishment uh you know so if you're kind of step outside yourself even in those moments i sometimes did have clarity and i thought oh my god i mean the efficiency of alcoholism like you'd nearly be impressed uh, in terms of just demolishing a person and you know i think anyone who's lived lived and loved people with addiction you know can see that one you know it really robs you of the person it robs you of yourself it's a very lonely pursuit uh and i say pursuit because i do feel like you're in it feels like you're in service to this addiction um in corpsing i kind of hit upon you know likening it to uh i have three children and this was like my fourth child it was my rotten baby in the book I had to protect it until it was more important than the other babies really and um I think uh you know another essay in the book that I was that felt radioactive to share is called Drunk Mother and um you know I wrote it again probably with the plan to bin it you know um and and the final lines of it I talk about kind of telling on myself kind of so that to protect my children actually so that if anyone kind of witnesses me back in these behaviors you know you know explicitly now that my children aren't safe and um, you know and I think it's a very particular um sort of state to be a parent with addiction um i think it's because it feels like you're inflicting it on those children and it's not to say that it is any way more difficult than a person who's child free with addiction but it is just another uh, aspect i guess you know yeah, yeah. i'm very grateful i'm three years sober <laughs> yay <laughs> my yeah. dad is what well, my dad is eight years sober and as a child of alcoholic, I just think my reading you helped me think about him. And so I think it's yeah. a really generous act to so many people for you to like open, be that open, that degree of open. And it's really brave. And brave is a word that I don't think so often gets applied to, you know, in really annoying ways. Um, and I'm going to say it now to both of you, like you've both written these brave books, but I but I really, I really think they are. And I think they are, like I said at the beginning, kinds of manifesto calls for action or for change or for thinking or for reflection. And one of um, Emma's point, your, one of your points, as it, just to remind you, um, is that you say, you, you suggest that we read more and that we read more fiction. And that really struck me after a year of living in lockdown when actually reading was one of the things that got me through because it was either because it was escapism or because it was just helping me be a better or a different person. Uh, and I just wondered, just as a kind of question to both of you, um, to round this out, to as, as writers, but also readers, like how has reading influenced your writing or what are you reading that is like, really kind of important for you at the moment or yeah so just to, to talk to you as readers as well as writers uh, well right now i'm reading uh joseph o'connor uh quite an old book of his called the salesman and i'm just loving it it's just this really totally 
I suppose, removed from uh, reality, uh, toxic relationship between two men. I, I couldn't have less to do with me, really, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's just a, a total kind of psychological drama. Um, I adore f- fiction and nonfiction, kind of every genre, really, I would read in, um, like, I suppose I'm a bit lazy about historical fiction. Um, (laughs) But I think when I'm writing, um, I tend to not read in the genre I'm writing. Um, And then I'd often, but I do so much preparatory reading for whatever I'm about to work on. And then I think in the edit stage, I go back again and read, um, you know, a lot around what I'm trying to explore too, I suppose, to kind of collect those perspectives. Um, and uh, let, me, let me think. I mean, I always uh, have like uh, an audiobook on the go. So actually, Emma is in my ears uh, a lot at the moment because <laughs> I'm listening to <laughs> what my people can do next. Um, I love, uh, I just actually love that uh, way of experiencing nonfiction particularly. With fiction, I have to read it. Um, in book form or Kindle, because I find I just lose my grip on the story and the characters if I try to listen. But with nonfiction, I find it like actually very powerful kind of way of communicating nonfiction work, you know. Um, and uh, did you do an audiobook actually of Notes to Self, Emily? I did. I did. I did. Possibly it was yeah. harder to <laughs> Look at your record face. it and then to write it. To write, write it. it. <laughs> and did you record it? Are you the voice of, of uh, what my people can do next? Yeah, I am. I, I, I can't listen back to it. Um, so I, oh, I have God, no God. idea what it sounds like. <laughs> people seem to like it, but I won't be listening. <laughs> yeah, so I... Um, actually have about five books on the go at the moment um but uh, oh no one i just finished actually um was called um like recently um called my bones and my flute by um edgar edgar mittelholzer and it is um a ghost a ghost story um written by a guyanese um playwright and he was the first um, Caribbean writer who um, achieved kind of international um, international acclaim, although he's not really very well known anymore. But I was watching um, the Adam Curtis. What's Adam Curtis's most recent um, documentary? Has anybody? Oh, I can't remember. I was watching that. Yeah, I was watching that, and there was like a ref. There was a reference to this guy. He seemed really fascinating, and yeah. So I got the book, My Bones and My Flute. I really love ghost, actually, ghost stories and um, folklore and mythology, um, which is something I would like to explore myself in my in 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 my writing, um, in future project projects. And then I'm also reading um, a nonfiction book called A Fistful of Shells, which is written by um, a historian at King's uh, University called Toby Green. And it's um, a it's a, it's a story of like African history from the kind of 1400s through the transatlantic slave trade. But he really shows the, it's, it's actually like a real reimagining of African history that I think is like a, just an incredibly important book that a lot more people should know. And he's done this combination of just like global international 
painstaking archival research in lots of different languages in lots of different parts of the world. But he's also recognized the necessity of with African history going to like oral sources as well. So he actually has like a lot of, um, he goes to a lot of like oral genres and has also used them in conjunction with the written word. But when you're using, often when you're using um, the work that is only in the archival sources, it is um, going to be inherently kind of Eurocentric. So he creates this very robust kind of vision from drawing on lots of different sources. And um, I'm also a terrible one for reading a book and having no idea what the title is or who the author is. So reading the book and being really into it, but actually like not being able to recall who's written it or what it's called. I'm also reading an amazing <laughs> book of like short stories um, about like um, about men and different kind of aspects of, well, it's not it's about men. It's just that all the protagonists are, are male and it explores different aspects of masculinity. Um, and it's just, just so beautifully written. But sadly, I can't. Recall the author's name. <laughs> I, I really you recommend it. It's so good. Okay, and I what I think is really fascinating, and I always love asking writers this question: is like, how does their reading influence their writing? And just that sense of it being a constant, and this is why this conversation is so interesting. That it's just a constant back and forth, right? We are not one thing; we're constantly in process. And that really struck me reading both of your books: that you are in very different ways writing about this moment now, whether it is that you as a person now um, or this society or this moment in relation to racism now. And that sense of, that's such a challenge. Like it's so difficult and you both do it so skillfully writing about something that is actually constantly changing. It's really, really hard and you do it so well. So I just want to thank you so much for having this conversation, which has just flown by. We could have talked for a lot longer. And let me simply close by recommending both your books to everybody listening and watching today in the strongest terms. So seriously, if you are wondering what to do next, go to a bookshop, your your local independent bookshop or online if you can't get there um, to buy and read What White People Can Do Next and Corpsing My Body and Other Horror Shows. I'm going to pull them up so that you can see the images of both of them. Sorry, I'm really bad at working out where the camera is. Um, And I want to say thank you, a huge thank you to Emma Dabry and Sophie White. And thanks to everyone for joining us to watch and listen. And hopefully um, you have enjoyed this and we will see you not just this year, but in person next year when we are past all of this. So thank you everybody so much. 